Lesson 2 for July 7-13, ready for teaching on July 14, Pentecost, Sabbath afternoon, July 7. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to another lesson in the Book of Acts, this exciting story of how your Holy Spirit worked among your people. And as today we look at Pentecost, we pray that we may experience that in our own lives. And as a church, as a community, may we share your love with those about us. But today I'd also like to pray particularly for any health issues or relationship issues that people who are listening have and pray that they may know that you are the rock that they can stand on. Bless each one of us as we open your word this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Let's read that again, Acts chapter 2, verses 32 and 33. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. Pentecost is from the word Pentecoste, the Greek name for the Jewish Feast of Weeks, as we read in Exodus 34, verse 22, And you shall observe the Feast of Weeks, of the firstfruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering of the Year's End. It is also known as the Feast of the Firstfruits, in Numbers 28, verse 26. Also, on the day of the firstfruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your Feast of Weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. The term means 50th and owes its usage to the fact that the feast was celebrated on the 50th day from the offering of the barley sheaf on the first day after the Passover. It was a day of joy and thanksgiving when the people of Israel brought before the Lord, as it says in Exodus 34.22, the firstfruits of the wheat harvest. The feast then became a fitting symbol for the first spiritual harvest of the Christian church. When the Holy Spirit was poured out more abundantly than ever before, and 3,000 people were baptised on a single day, as we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 21, Then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Following the ascension of Jesus and his exaltation in heaven, this outpouring of the Spirit was a sudden and supernatural event that transformed the apostles from simple and obscure Galileans into men of conviction and courage who would change the world. Pentecost often is called the birthday of the church, the time that Christ followers, Jews and later Gentiles, were legitimized as God's new community on earth.
Sunday, July 8, The Coming of the Spirit In obedience to God's command, the believers waited in Jerusalem for the promise of the Spirit, and they waited amid fervent prayer, sincere repentance and praise. When the day came, they were all together in one place, as we read in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, probably the same large upper room of Acts chapter 1. Soon, however, they would move to a more public area, as we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 6 through to 13. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marvelled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each in our own language, in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. Question. Read Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through to 3. What supernatural elements accompanied the outpouring of the Spirit? Acts 2, beginning at verse 1, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. The scene was intense. There was first a sudden noise from heaven, like the roaring of a violent windstorm that filled the entire place. And then what looked like flames of fire appeared and rested upon those who were there. In Scripture, wind and fire frequently are associated with a theophany or a divine manifestation. For example, in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire. But the bush was not consumed. And Exodus chapter 19 verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And Deuteronomy 4 and verse 15. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. In addition, Wind and fire also may be used to represent the Spirit of God, as we read in John chapter 3 verse 8 and Matthew chapter 3 verse 11. John 3 8 reads, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. And Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
In the case of Pentecost, whatever the precise meaning of such phenomena, they were signs introducing a unique moment in the history of salvation, the promised outpouring of the Spirit. The Spirit always had been at work. Its influence on God's people in the Old Testament times was often revealed in a notable way, but never in its fullness. Ellen White writes in the Acts of the Apostles, page 37, During the patriarchal age, the influence of the Holy Spirit had often been revealed in a marked manner, but never in its fullness. Now, in obedience to the word of the Saviour, the disciples offered their supplications for this gift, and in heaven Christ added his intercession. He claimed the gift of the Spirit, that he might pour it upon his people. End of quote. John the Baptist foretold the baptism with the Spirit by the coming Messiah in Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we'll compare that with Acts chapter 11, verse 16. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself referred to it several times. In Luke 24, verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This outpouring would be his first intercessory act before God, as we read in John 14, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. And John 14, verse 26, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And John 15, and verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. At Pentecost, the promise was fulfilled. Although the baptism with the Spirit of Pentecost was a unique event related to Jesus' victory on the cross and exaltation in heaven, being filled with the Spirit is an experience to be continuously repeated in the believer's lives. As we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, and then he continued, and the same chapter 4, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And Acts chapter 11, verse 24, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And Acts 13, verse 9, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And Acts 13, verse 52, And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5, verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
So to finish today, what evidence do you have of the spirits working in your life? July 9. The Gift of Tongues. In Acts chapter 2 verse 4 we read, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The gift of the Spirit here was manifested through speaking in tongues, yet this gift was only one of many different manifestations of the Spirit, as expressed in Acts chapter 10 45 and 46 and chapter 19 verse 6. Others include foretelling the future in Acts chapter 11.28, visions in Acts chapter 7.55, inspired speech in Acts chapter 2 verse 8 and Acts chapter 28 verse 25, healing in Acts chapter 3 verse 6 and 12 and chapter 5 verse 12 and 16, and qualification for service, Acts chapter 6 verse 3 and verse 5. The gift of tongues at Pentecost did not occur because it is the typical or the most important evidence of the endowment of the Spirit. It was manifested in order to launch the church's world mission. That is, the calling given in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 required the gift of tongues. As the apostles were to cross cultural barriers and reach the ends of the earth with the gospel, they would need to be able to speak in the languages of those who needed to hear what they had to say. Question. Read Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through to 13. What is the evidence that at Pentecost the apostles spoke in existing foreign languages? Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marvelled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in his own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. It is estimated that in the first century there were eight to ten million Jews in the world, and that up to sixty percent of them lived outside the land of Judea. Yet many who were in Jerusalem for the feast were from foreign lands, and could not speak Aramaic, the language of Judean Jews at that time. There is no question that most converts at Pentecost were Jews from various lands who could now hear the gospel in their own native languages. That the apostles spoke in existing foreign languages rather than in unknown ecstatic languages is evidenced by the term dialectos, 
in Acts chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, which means language of a nation or a region. And we'll compare that with Acts chapter 21 and verse 40. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. And in chapter 22, verse 2, And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And Acts 26, verse 14, And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. To finish today, A powerful manifestation of God is happening before their eyes, and yet these people think it is just drunkenness? How can we be careful not to be so spiritually blind ourselves? Tuesday, July 10, Peter's Sermon The charge of drunkenness gave Peter the opportunity to explain what was happening. In his speech, the Apostle first pointed to Scripture, describing the outpouring of the Spirit as the fulfilment of prophecy. Let's read about that in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapour of smoke, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Question. Compare Acts 2.17 with Joel 2.28. How did Peter understand the time of fulfilment of Joel's prophecy? Acts 2.17 And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Whereas Joel chapter 2.28 reads... And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Joel's prophecy was about the future age of salvation, uh, which we will read about later in Joel 2.32, which would be characterized by several signs in the natural world and a lavish outpouring of the spirit. And we'll read about this in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth 
blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. By interpreting the Pentecost event in light of such prophecy, Peter intended to stress the historical relevance of that moment. But there is an important difference in the way he quotes Joel. Instead of Joel's introductory afterward, in verse 28, which pointed quite generally to the future, Peter said, in the last days, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, indicating that the final act in the great drama of salvation had just begun. This is not, of course, a full description of last day events, but an evidence of the high sense of urgency that distinguished the early church. They did not know when the end would come, but were convinced it would not take long. Question. Read Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 32. What was the main point in Peter's presentation of the gospel? Acts 2, beginning at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. After highlighting the prophetic significance of Pentecost, Peter turned to the recent events of Jesus' life, his death and resurrection. It is the resurrection, however, that received greater emphasis, as it represented the decisive factor in the gospel story. For Peter, the resurrection was the ultimate vindication of Jesus, as he expressed in verses 22 and 27. And he quoted scripture to help make his point about the meaning of the resurrection. Because Jesus was the Messiah, he could not be detained by death. So, for Peter and all the writers of the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus had become powerful evidence, not only of Jesus as the Messiah, but the whole Christian message of salvation. And so to finish today, with death all around us, always threatening us or our loved ones, 
Why is the resurrection of Jesus such an important truth? Wednesday, July 11. The Exaltation of Jesus. Acts chapter 2 verse 33 reads, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. In the third part of the speech, Peter went back to the issue of tongues, which had attracted the people in the first place. Instead of being drunk, which would have been strange at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, Acts 2.15 says, For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The believers were speaking in tongues because the Holy Spirit had just been poured out from heaven. Question. Read Acts chapter 2, verses 33 to 36. What is the connection between Jesus' exaltation at the right hand of God and the outpouring of the Spirit? Acts 2, beginning at verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The right hand of God is a position of authority, as we read in Psalm 110, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of wholeness, from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. Peter's argument, which he based on scripture, is that it was because Jesus had been elevated to such a position in heaven that he poured out the Spirit upon his followers. The exaltation did not grant Jesus a status he did not have before. As we read in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God." All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And John chapter 17, verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Instead, it represented the Father's supreme recognition of his prerogative as Lord and Saviour, as we read just before in Acts 2.36. This event actually brings us to one of the most important themes in Scripture, the cosmic conflict between good and evil. The point is that the Spirit could not fully come if Jesus were not exalted, and Jesus would not be exalted if he had not triumphed on the cross. We read in John 7.39, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. 
For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And John 17, verses 4 and 5, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In other words, Jesus' exaltation was the condition for the coming of the Spirit because it signified God's approval of Jesus' accomplishments on the cross, including the defeat of the one who had usurped the rule of this world. As we read in John 12.31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The entrance of sin into the world cast a shadow upon God. Jesus' death was necessary not only to redeem human beings, but also to vindicate God and expose Satan as a fraud. In Jesus' ministry, the age of salvation was already at work, as we read in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. When he cast out demons or forgave sins, he was releasing Satan's captives. Yet it was the cross that would give him full authority to do that. So... When Christ's self-sacrifice was authenticated in heaven, Satan had received a decisive blow, and the Spirit was being poured out to prepare a people for the coming of Christ. Thursday, July 12, the first fruits. Peter's hearers were cut to the heart by his words. Some of them might have been among those who asked for Jesus' crucifixion a few weeks before, as recorded in Luke 23, beginning at verse 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence... I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. 
So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they requested, who, for rebellion and murder, had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. But now, persuaded that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed God's appointed Messiah, they cried out in sorrow, What shall we do? In Acts 2, verse 37. Question. Read Acts chapter 2, verse 38. What are the basic two requirements for forgiveness? Acts 2.38 Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance means a radical change of direction in life, a turning away from sin. As we read in Acts chapter 3.19 Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And Acts 26 verse 20 But declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance, rather than simply a feeling of sadness or remorse. Together with faith, true repentance is a gift of God. But like all gifts, it can be rejected. As we read in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 26, and Romans chapter 2. Acts 5 verses 31 to 33 read, Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and saviour, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And Acts 26, 19 onwards. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Since the time of John the Baptist, repentance was associated with baptism. As we read in Mark 1.4, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That is, baptism became an expression of repentance, a rite symbolizing the washing away of sins and the moral regeneration produced by the Holy Spirit, as we read in Acts chapter 2.38 and chapter 22 verse 14 and Titus chapter 3 beginning at verse 5. Firstly, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 22, verse 16. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And Titus 3, verses 5 to 7. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy 
He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Question. Read Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. What special promise is given to those who repent and are baptized? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call the people of Pentecost were offered not only forgiveness of sins, but also the fullness of the Spirit for personal growth, for service in the church, and especially for mission. This was perhaps the greatest of all blessings, for the main reason the church exists is to share the good news of the gospel, as we read in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. So, from this point forward, they would have assurance of salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit, which would enable them for the mission to which the church had been called. So to finish the day, why is the realisation that we have the remission of your sins so important for anyone who wants to proclaim the gospel. After all, what hope can you offer to others in Jesus if you don't have it yourself? Friday, July 13. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost revealed a crucial truth about what happened in heaven and about how God the Father accepted Christ's sacrifice for the sins of the world. The outpouring of the Spirit showed, too, that Christ's work in heaven in our behalf, based on his sacrifice on earth, was now inaugurated. These astonishing events are more manifestations of the wonderful truth that heaven and earth are connected in ways that we just can't fathom now. In the book Acts of the Apostles, page 38 and 39, we read, Christ's ascension to heaven was the signal that his followers were to receive the promised blessing. When Christ passed within the heavenly gates, he was enthroned amidst the adoration of the angels. As soon as this ceremony was completed, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples in rich currents, and Christ was indeed glorified, even with the glory which he had with the Father from all eternity. The Pentecostal outpouring was heaven's communication that the Redeemer's inauguration was accomplished. According to his promise, he had sent the Holy Spirit from heaven to his followers as a token that he had, as priest and king, received all authority in heaven and on earth, and was the anointed one over his people. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. What of Pentecost can the Church expect to experience in its life today? What is repeatable, and what is not? 2. 
dwell more on the fact that Peter made the resurrection of Jesus such an important part of his Pentecost message. What made the resurrection even more astonishing is that whatever Jewish messianic expectations had existed at the time, no one was expecting a Messiah to be resurrected from the dead. That was not on anyone's spiritual radar. It was not what those awaiting the coming of the Messiah had anticipated. What lessons can we learn from this about how we need to know what the Bible teaches as opposed to whatever the latest popular teachings are? And 3. Acts 2.38 talked about the need of baptism. Does this mean that anyone who believed in Jesus but died before being baptised must of necessity be lost? Justify your answer. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Best Friends and it's by Batelja Betsigen. My first visit to church was in the ninth grade. The reason is rather embarrassing. I went because my best friend decided to sleep with her boyfriend. But my best friend, Otko, asked for my advice outside our high school in Mongolia's capital, Ulaanbaatar. I was just 16, but I was sure that she was making a bad decision. I told her not to do it. Then, just to make sure, I asked my older sister what she thought. My sister, who attended a Seventh-day Adventist church, went straight to Otko and told her to wait until she got married. Otko was furious that I had revealed her secret. She said bad things about me to my classmates, and they started to ignore me. In a single week, I lost my best friend and all my friends at school. I felt so lonely. I asked my sister if I could go with her to church. The people at church welcomed me. They were warm and friendly, and they taught me about God. After a few months, my classmates slowly began to talk to me again. They noticed that I was going to church, and they asked, "'What are you doing? Why are you going to church?' I told them that I was becoming a Christian." But I wasn't so open with my parents. My parents are Buddhists, as are most people in Mongolia, and they were angry about my interest in Christianity. I kept attending church every Sabbath, but I hid that from my parents. Eventually I told the truth and discovered that my parents had known all along. They accepted my decision to get baptised. A year and a half after Otko stopped being my friend, she came to my house one evening to acknowledge that I had been right. She sadly told me that she had gotten pregnant and had had an abortion. But, she said, you are a heavenly person. I don't want to lose you as a friend. I'm willing to even die for you. Otko didn't know it, but her words are also in the Bible. In John 15:13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Otko and I are good friends to this day, but my best friend gave his life 
for me. And there's a photo here of Batelja Betetseg, who's 32, and she's a fifth-grade teacher at Tuskal School, the only Adventist school in Mongolia. This quarter's 13th Sabbath offering will help build a boarding academy for the school's 9th to 12th grade students, freeing up classroom space for more elementary school students. Your reader for this week's Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide has been Dr. Percy Harold. It has been produced in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind, distributed under the auspices of the Sabbath School Department by HopeChannel.com.